Why with Arcia Tecun. Tsekat Kyora Sotofa Bene Maikwas Yate. Warm greetings, everybody. It's been a little while. I'm adjusting to living once again in the hub of uh, empire. And you'll hear from me uh, today and, and probably in the next couple of episodes that I can uh, muster in the next little while. And then hopefully uh, be able to set up some Talanoa Platica talk story with, with different folks. So uh, you can hear from others as well, like uh, I've tried to do uh, in the past. To start off, I guess I just have a few reflections, and then what I want to do in this episode is uh, just share some of the research I've been getting up to for over the last five months or so, and thinking about peoples of place, and, and thinking about relating to place, and uh, what does that mean uh, in terms of you know responsibilities and, and possibilities when you are in a, a place that has a, a deeper history than your own personal ancestry. And so, to, I guess the first reflections is, you know, one of the things being here is that the pace of life is, is very different. It's, people are caught up in, you know, the hustle, the grind, and I'm not here for that, but it is a reality and people are so busy and isolated in that same process. And so, I do miss the slower pace of even being in a big city like Tamaki Makoto. I felt like uh, it was a slower pace than here for sure. And uh, I do miss that. And then I think also of, you know, just being three-hour flight away from Tonga and being surrounded by uh, an incredibly uh, generous uh, and loving people all around, you know. And I guess I, I, I hold on to that, uh, particularly right now at this moment. And while I do have, you know, ties to other places w with similar, such as uh, in Guatemala as well and other parts of the Global South... The last, you know, uh, eight years of, of our lives were, were tied to being in Oceania or in the Moana. And so as we're here, it's just like I find myself perhaps more, you know, overtly expressing the kind of love that I miss feeling in the kind of community and generosity of, you know, kind of social life in, in the places we were at before being here. That being said, it is also good to be here. There are good people here just busy <laughs> and so finding uh, those moments to to extend time with them ha is great and the, I think the there is a, a particular kind of gratitude for that here um, because it isn't as commonplace in this society at least in my view and experience and so that is kind of nice to experience as well uh, one other thing you know that will tie into what I want to share today is you know you know, we lived in Otahuhu and then, you know, in Waipuna or Mount Welly. And um, we were, you know, close to Mongarei and also the what in English is known as the Panmure Basin and what I came to know as Waiahiku in Te Reo Māori, which is the waters of Hiku, which is short for Te Mokoika Hikuwaru, the Tanifa or the water guardian, protector, dragon in those waters. And... You know, I was working in academia, and now I'm currently working in a conservation organization, and so I hadn't really thought about it in these terms, but, you know, just being there and wanting to relate in terms of the 
upholding the mana, the honor of Tangata Fenua, peoples of the land, doing my best to understand and learn the the words and terms and, and korero or the stories behind them as well. And so there at Waihiku, you know, there was heaps of kotare or kingfisher and tui or passerine bird and, and piwakawaka or the New Zealand fantail. And there's other names for it as well, but those are the ones that I kind of became familiar with. And uh, it was it was just such a beautiful experience to be able to relate to those non-human animals in that way, the birds, the manu, um, and that place, those waters, and, and where we were at. And now, kind of being back where I grew up, I'm back in the, you know, Rose Park, west side of Salt Lake City, or as it is known in Noah Daikwa, or the Shoshone language, Songan, or, you know, this place of many houses. You know, I think about, you know, what I knew or didn't know before. And now that I'm back, I'm like, oh, like, again, not that things are perfect in Aotearoa, like, there's certainly a long ways to go there in terms of uh, indigenous issues. However, compared to here, it's... Uh, <laughs> Very different level. Um, I recently had a conversation with Lana Lopesi, who um, has been on the pod before, around like our, she's now at University of Oregon, and you know, kind of this experience of being in the U.S. For me, again, and for her now, you know, there's this kind of almost over determination of identity in terms of race, whereas in Aotearoa, it's perhaps over determined by indigeneity, and over there perhaps a lack of robust kind of analysis in terms of race and understanding race. Whereas here, though, uh, indigeneity is just so invisible in many ways, and in particular, uh, the global kind of indigenous paradigm. Um, and so it's kind of like turned inside out and outside in, moving across uh, the ocean and uh, between these two places in New Zealand and the U.S., you know, with that in mind, you know, like thinking about growing up here, you know, I did have, I do remember two friends who were peers that were uh, Noa or Shoshone and um, also heaps of, uh, you know, good handful of Dene or Navajo because, you know, they roll deep here. And I, I did come to learn a little bit, but not a lot, really. Um, I remember, you know, a couple of, I guess, counter narratives to the dominant stories here and also, I think in my early university years, I may have mentioned it in a previous episode, that I did I learned about the, the word Songane for, for this region from a, a Western Shoshone elder. And, you know, I've always remembered that. But that kind of was the extent. It's, it's not as easily available um, or publicly accessible as I was used to in, in Aotearoa. And again, that's not to say that things in Aotearoa were what they needed to be. There's a, there's a ways to go there as well. But in comparison, it was a very drastically different paradigm. Uh, so I want to focus today on thinking about place, and it's going to be very localized to Utah and my research over the last five months. Um, however, I think it applies globally as well. You know, whenever you reside in a place that um, doesn't have an immediate ancestral tie to you, you know, it, it, the onus shouldn't be on us, but it, it tragically is because the structure and system of, you know, uh, imperial society, modern society, it puts it all on the individual, which which is, you know, the responsibility is, is uh, much bigger than that. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that I've been looking at and doing is trying to better understand this place that I, you know, grew up in, uh, better understand this place that I've come to call home yet again, and it's not my only home. I miss 
um, my Aotearoa and that's always going to be with me and who knows maybe in the future find a way back but for now we're here and you know I remember growing up having some understanding of this idea of kind of five major cultural groups here in terms of indigenous folks as Shoshone, Goshu, Ute, Paiute, and Navajo. All those terms though being kind of uh, externally imposed colonial terms to some degree and you know kind of jumping into a variety of different literature um, as of recent over the last um, five months has helped me kind of revisit and re-engage with that. And so there's quite a bit of, of sources actually that were written by or recorded of indigenous folks where they they tell their story, their history. Um, and so one of the things that I do want to mention is that while I do engage with folks um, and community and as a recent trying to connect with tribal governments as well, um, there's a limited capacity there, you know, in terms of resources and availability. And so I think it's important to respect that as well. And, you know, one thing that we can all do is look at stuff that they've already said and recorded or written um, instead of just wanting to kind of give me the answer. And, and you know, that's not really a, a fair or equitable or, or, you know, just way of approaching things. Uh, and so there's 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 quite a few books, and so uh, one is uh, Darren Perry's book on the the Bear River Massacre, also the book edited by Forrest Kutch, which is a history of Utah's American Indians, which was published 20 years ago, but really an important book in terms of local folks from across all those different kind of major culture groups that I mentioned write for themselves. Um, their story, their perspectives. And then there's a kind of a companion to that, which is the We Shall Remain documentary series, uh, specifically for Utah, which also highlights kind of those five um, major culture groups as, as they're kind of generally understood. There's also a book that was just released earlier this year by Dora Van, Tressa Jordan, and John Torres um, called There Are No Utes in Utah, History of the Uinta Valley Shoshone Tribe of the Utah Nation and offers a lot of important insights as well. Additionally, um, there's a couple of books also written by non-Indigenous folks that have some useful uh, information in them as well and that um, highlight uh, Indigenous voices throughout their work in different ways. And, you know, one of those is Black Hawk's Mission of Peace by uh, Philip Goffordson. Um, and there's also Utah's Black Hawk War by John Alton Peterson and On Mount Zion by Jared Farmer. And there's also this really um, important article, I would say, that was published over, you know, over 100 years ago now by uh, Chamberlain called Place and Personal Names of the Goshu Indians of Utah, which is where I found a lot of the, you know, a lot of the place names for where I live and for this region. Um, however, you know, the spelling was a little bit tricky to understand because there's different spellings that are used now and there's still kind of different linguistic camps as to how to spell things. So there's another important book um, that was written by uh, Drusilla Gold, who's uh, Fort Hall Shoshone and also Christopher Luther called An Introduction to the Shoshone Language. And there's also a, the Utah University of Utah Shoshone Language Project in which they have an online dictionary, but also a talking dictionary with folks from uh, using a variety of different dialects in the Shoshone language. When, when I say Shoshone language, I'm talking primarily as of contemporary terms, the Shoshone and Goshu peoples. 
but this is you know looking at the books that i've mentioned there's people that are part of the contemporary kind of you indian tribe that were on this west side of the wasatch mountains that were removed from this side and moved to um, that reservation that would have um, also been part of of this and, and perhaps with their own dialect but with a shared language too As I'm reading this stuff and looking at these things, um, you know, th there's these different layers of, of thinking about identity here and the indigenous identities and politics and issues. And um, one is while there is these kind of five major cultural groups that I've mentioned, um, at least in kind of some form of understanding, they are also responding to um, various waves of colonialism, first by the Spanish, then by the Mexicans, and most recently and probably the most impactful in terms of our contemporary reality is um, the Anglo or U.S. Uh, by way of, of Mormon pioneers here in Utah um, and then eventually becoming part of the United States. And so we have what's, you know, the federal recognition politics, which is, uh, in essence, tri tribal nations, right? In order to be considered civilized, you have to have a civilized social organization, which in modernity is nation states. And I've you know, talked about critiqued, you know, the, the notion of national formations in terms of, you know, being a very recent phenomenon in, in our history as, as people and as a species on this planet. However, it nonetheless is, is, you know, what dominates. And so there's a couple people that I think are important to mention here. One is um, Sean Coulthart and Simpson, who both um, provide useful criticisms of recognition politics and the limitations of them, but also understanding that it is a dominant frame and understanding in which a lot of um, folks have to uh, operate or, or try to use in order to gain some form of treaty settlement or, or treaty right enforcement. And, and again, many of which are broken and, and not really honored. And so it's a tricky situation. But there is also uh, Dwayne Champagne who, who talks about the, the U.S. and Canada experience, for example, as uh, perhaps being understood as nations that are held captive, right? So there's tribal groups that are recognized as nations, as sovereign nations, at least on paper, um, but they're held captive by the larger kind of settler colonial nation state. Whereas south of the border, um, Champagne talks about how it's a bit more around captive citizens in particularly places where you may have an indigenous majority, which is different to the U.S. and Canada context, uh, which is why the politics shifts in order to maintain power there. Um, you don't recognize uh, indigenous nations in those places in terms of the relationship with the nation state, but rather captive citizens as individuals in order to not be able to to undermine the potential power they have uh, and so you know that being said that's one thing we have to contend with and here in utah uh, or at least in the territories that are currently occupied by utah the state of utah is uh, there are eight federally recognized tribal nations now those fluctuate throughout time my understanding of the the Paiute indian tribe in the southwest here includes the sadutsan or the cedar band of Paiute that um, I believe 20 or 30 years ago gained federal recognition after losing it. And so it's something that, uh, again, there's a bureaucracy of having to prove or claim with a certain amount of people to 
uh, have that kind of recognition in order to make other uh, legal claims as well. And at the moment, there's other groups too, such as that that book that is challenging the notion of Utes. And what my understanding is, is that the reference there is that there's people who were on the west side of the Wasatch that were removed from there who are called Utes, but are maybe more closely related to today's contemporary kind of Shoshone and Goshut peoples in many ways. And that there's also people that are removed from what we would today call Colorado that are uh, also known as Utes and that they all got kind of conflated together. So I think that tension, uh, you know, is a result of, of different groups of people that might be related, but nonetheless are distinct being brought together and, and kind of conflated together and by the perspective of the colonial nation. Um, so it causes a lot of issues and rifts between people, right? It pits people against each other um, and then puts the onus on individuals to distinguish themselves. And so, um, you know, keeping all of that in mind, you know, there's um, the, the Uinta band there in the U Indian tribe that, um, you know, were removed from, you know, the west side of the mountain and are over there. And there's also the Timpanogos, who are also, to my understanding, being led by their executive director, Mary Murdoch, uh, building a case to, to gain federal recognition as a, a distinct and independent uh, group because they, they were, right? Timpanogos band were, were quite a unique and, and powerful group that then was removed and, and put on that side, on the other side of the mountain. Again, federal recognition is something that's always shifting and changing, but it's important to understand how that currently exists, and that these are sovereign nations, and that at least on paper have or should have a nation-to-nation -nation relationship and some level of interdependence. However, the tricky thing is, right, it, you know, governing oneself, but then not having uh, power or jurisdiction to enforce on others, and so the governance still remains in the hands of the settler colonial nation state here and in, in bigger terms too, coloniality and, and kind of Western modernity um, is the, the philosophy that governs um, throughout the world uh, to various degrees. So the another layer is then thinking about urban indigenous populations. And here in Utah, the last I looked on the Division of Indian Affairs website, I believe it was over 60,000 American Indian, Native American, Alaska Native, or the different terms that were used in that, who who live here, and they may or may not all be, you know, linked to uh, tribes in this place, at least at the point of contact with European imperial powers um, or modern nation state powers. And so, you know, that's a that's a whole other realm of experience too. And I'm not sure if folks have seen um, the the show Reservation Dogs. You know, a really important show be a bit heavy at times too, um, dealing with some very real issues, but also has some great comedy, some great um, emotional uplift. And, and it's great to have the, these contemporary representations of urban, you know, or uh, uh, these contemporary representations of uh, contemporary indigenous experience in life and particularly on reservations. You know, that being said though, you know, the, the majority of indigenous folks, and when I say indigenous, I'm at the moment, I'm focusing and referring to those who would be classified as Native American or American Indian and, and or Alaska Native. So indigenous to the current continental boundaries of the United States empire at the point of kind of European contact, right? So that, again, freezes in time, mobility and movement across the continents. But for the sake of a starting point, that's what I'm referring to. And, you know, these indigenous folks, most are not on reservations at the moment. Um, there was an article in the New York Times um, several years ago now, but had uh, reported, you know, 
that 7 out of 10 are currently living in urban centers. And there's quite a bit of uh, urban centers around the U.S. where uh, a lot of, um, you'll find a lot of indigenous folks there. And so that's something to keep in mind that, you know, this urban indigenous population represents a majority experience in terms of indigenous folks in the U.S. context from the U.S. context as far as ancestral ties go. Uh, and so that's, those are two layers, right? And for me, I like to kind of get, deeper too uh, and what was the the way in which people understood themselves before all of that and and even through all of that and uh, possibly beyond all of that uh, now and in the future and at least for me as of right now again take it with a grain of salt I've got a lot to learn but just listening to the writings and the oral histories that are recorded and the documentary films and engaging with folks and, and trying to get a grasp of things, perhaps instead of tribes or tribal nations, you know, thinking about bands, um, family bands, uh, of which there were many uh, that would fluctuate and shift and had, you know, flexible uh, leadership in, in many ways. You know, and again, you know, being human beings, you know, people loved each other, they fought against each other, they intermarried, they, they did everything, they traded, all kinds of stuff, right? And so all of the above existed. Um, and so having those different bands makes sense, especially in terms of, you know, uh, marriage. You know, you'd probably want to find somebody from a different band in order to uh, enter in those types of unions. Yet there was something that was shared, and one way of thinking about it is through ethno-linguistics or the culture of language. And so the, the Great Basin, or this part of Utah in particular, is it's considered the central numic branch, according to linguists and anthropologists. I'm not saying that's the best way of identifying the language, but as a starting point, right, the central numic branch of the larger kind of Uto-Aztec language family, which is quite a big family uh, across the Great Basin and is believed to begin, I believe, a couple thousand years ago in southeastern California, at least in today's terms that spread then across here and then um, also uh, leapfrog down into central Mexico and different parts of Central America through Nahuatl um, language that is considered in that language family um, possibly or likely from migrations anywhere between 700 and 1000 years ago that moved south and then also even um, the Comanche in Texas and the word Comanche itself coming out of this language branch um, or out of Numic which is a, a more specific branch of this larger one. So the the terms that I have learned and I'm using the best pronunciation I have at the moment, you know, is, is uh, Noah uh, for, you know, what often is termed as Goshu or even Shoshone. Um, May Timbimbu Perry wrote a chapter in the, the book edited by Forrest Kutz that I mentioned earlier about American Indians in Utah, where she also refers to Nima. So Noah and Nim, what either with a W or an M, referring to the people, meaning the people, uh, and that could uh, and that refers to what today is kind of known as uh, Shoshone or Goshu and what they call themselves. Um, there's also um, you know what we would today understand as the Ute or the Utah. Um, now the word Utah, I believe came at the point of contact with the Spaniards, the peoples known as Utahs, so then all the different peoples are called Utahs. So the state of Utah is named after the Utahs, or the Utah people, as they were understood in that interaction with the Spanish, and that's where Ute may come out of. But they call themselves, which 
Um, again, shout out to Isaiah. Thanks for helping me understand uh, this a bit better. But nooch being an individual person or just meaning a person. Um, and then nooch you, um, which would be kind of people or the people. Trying to make sense of, of how we end up where we're currently at. And uh, again, though, you know, there's a, you know, a bigger terms of just referring to themselves as the people. And there's more specific nuanced ones depending on which band you come from and and where that band is located and which even more specific place that that is linked to uh, if we go further to the south we have um the paiute and uh they call themselves uh Nungwa or Nungwavi as, as far as i understand it um which again also means the people and so you can kind of hear Nungwa, Numma, Nuch, Nuchu, Nungwavi or Nungwa um sound similar right and that first sound and vowel are, are almost identical throughout and so you can see kind of that root shared language even though um, there are some distinctions and then even within that shared language is a variety of dialects uh, as well and different pronunciations um, but that's what i mean by ethnolinguistic now it does have a bit of a jump when we get into the southeastern part of what today's utah territory is with dene or or navajo because there you can hear the difference right dene versus the n uh beginning there's a different language group associated with with dene as well even though they've been here for ages too and so that's one way of trying to you know make sense of it there's one account that i read in chamberlain's article was that perhaps the Paiute were named by, you know, today's what we would consider those who remained in the Goshu territory um, coming out of Piayuta, um, which perhaps, you know, Piami means big in um, Noah or Noah Daigua, the Shoshone language, and, and then Utah, a group of people, so, or, or people, and, and perhaps refers to the movement of or, or the moving of um, a large group of people from uh, further north down to the south. Goshu, uh, you know, there's many other terms I've read, like Goshen Ute and, and so forth, in, uh, in several other accounts to have come across Kosyuta, and you can kind of hear Kosyuta, how that could be mispronounced into Goshu, um, Kos, Kosyuta. But there's, um, um, in the documentary for the Goshu, in uh, We Shall Remain, Peoples of Utah, the late Rupert Steele, um, the chief Rupert Steele, um, the, the former chairperson for the Confederate tribe of Goshu, refers to Kutzip, uh, which is also recorded in, in Chamberlain's article. The only bad thing about Chamberlain's article is he doesn't reference the people he's learning from and, and the people that um, are teaching him this, you know, the, the words and language. Uh, but Kutzip refers to kind of dust or earth. And so um, perhaps Kutsip Utah is the origin for Kusyuta and then Goshu later, right? Peoples of the dust or, or desert peoples uh, in one sense. And then Shoshone and Drusilla Gold's book, she talks about it it's coming out of Sosoni, referring to kind of grass roof people. And returning back to May Timbimbu Perry's writings, she also uh, points to Sosogoy as one uh, other term for, for what we would today kind of understand as the Northwestern Band of Shoshone, who were split kind of between the Northwestern Band in, in Utah and then the Fort Hall Shoshone up in current day kind of Idaho. Um, but Sosogoy referring to kind of people who are, are mobile or mobile people who are, are moving around. Um, so then that's another kind of specificity.
And then thinking about this, you know, looking at, you know, what were the different bands that would have been in this region of Songane of many houses, there's many that would have traveled up and down. I mean, including Dene. I mean, I've found stories of Dene coming up to either trade or harvest salt from the, from Biapa, which is one word for the Great Salt Lake, meaning big water. Um, but then the, the bands that would have perhaps rotated here quite a bit, at least in the point of contact, too. Are, are many and you know one that I uh, you know the one of the big ones I would say is the Uncagarits or um, what we would kind of today understand as Skull Valley Go Shoot um, and then there's also the Uinta or the Uinta that are now kind of on the east side of the mountain and kind of removed from this area there's another one that um, is written about quite a bit or the Kamumba and they're also known as the Wipayuta or the Weber Utes and they were quite interesting because they're kind of in between what today we would consider Weber or kind of Ogden down to, to uh, contemporary Salt Lake region. Um, but they were often referred, like at least in the, especially in, in terms of the Utah's Black Hawk War and previous conflicts, they were often a neutral party because they were related to all these different bands. So they were kind of this in-between uh, band that um, had relations across uh, different positions. And so they often kind of remained neutral. Um, but they also kind of were uh, absorbed into today's kind of uh, the last 150 years um, uh, Ute tribe, and then, uh, or at least in the Ute into Ore, Northern Ute, because there's also the Ute Mountain Ute and and the Southern Ute as well, um, and and then of course the Timpanogos. And uh, one of the things that uh, I did want to mention there, um, which comes out of Jared Farmer's book, is I think he makes an interesting point that I think you know, also builds into my interest in kind of trying to better relate to this place and better understand this place is, you know, that there was this aquatic age, um, he argues, um, in terms of uh, particularly the Timpanogos band and their kind of power uh, as a, a very dominant uh, group uh, in the region, particularly um, uh, post-Spanish uh, interactions and adoption of the horse and uh, involvement in a variety of different trade um uh, good, bad, and ugly, uh, and uh, but nonetheless, this you know not just there, but this whole region, right, was in this aquatic age, uh, and then looking at some archaeological records, there's estimates that peoples across this region. It's interesting because I grew up in like, oh, you live in a desert, but I'm like I'm reading these accounts, and thirty to thirty-five percent of the diet was coming from water resources, fish and mollusks um, that I had no idea existed here before and today the awako or the sucker fish is endangered uh, and there's one that's endemic to Pakatetin or, or, or the, what is today known as Utah Lake and uh, endangered there as well and there's still sucker fish or awako across um, different parts including Piaogwe or, or the Big Floor Big River which you know I was kind of introduced to colonially as the Jordan River and that's part of what, you know, Farmer talks about in his book is that this was this process of desertification. And so I grew up with this narrative of like, oh, the pioneers made this place blossom as a rose. The desert blossomed as a rose through kind of industry and so on and so forth. And, you know, I'm looking at these records and it's like, wait a minute, there was this lush wetlands all across this area. Biaogwe or the Jordan River was five times larger than it currently is, but it's been channeled and canaled and dammed to the point of becoming this this yeah this this channel or canal rather than this big, large flowing river all across the region that would flood in the spring and and 
create this, you know, this lush wetlands full of food, like this food forest of, of things to eat and, and rich in, you know, uh, water resources of, of, you know, fish and mollusks and, and the like. And so that's a very interesting to think of to think about in comparison to the dominant narrative I was fed growing up and then seeing this other uh, memory, this other reality that once was, and that perhaps, you know, we can't go back, but uh, we certainly can't continue the way we are, particularly the water issues in, in Utah at the moment. I feel like I landed in the movie Dune, in, uh, you know, desert, and, like, and then this desertification process, not only physically desertifying the area by intensive agriculture and you know siphoning all these water resources killing the game which also ultimately led to issues of uh, food uh, security and ultimately conflicts right and utah's black hawk war and many more that came about that and so uh the idea that farmer presents is that you know from the aquatic age we moved into a hydraulic one uh, in which we're alienated and these are now my interpretation of it which we're alienated to water um, through its commodification as a resource. Remember talking with Ashley Gillen, a good mate, uh, in a previous episode in the past, and we brought this up of like the idea of you know engaging with place as a resource that can be extracted and and used rather than understanding it as a source of life, right? And this isn't to romanticize the past or or even indigenous peoples but it's to better understand a, a very different way of relating to the world and understanding place and where we live and while i'm being very locally specific to where i'm at this is something that applies um everywhere i would argue uh, in terms of understanding what is the longest tradition what is what is what the elders of that place say you know, and so while I, I do think that there's a lot of different indigenous identities that can exist simultaneously in a place, the, the one that I'm highlighting right now is the elder indigenous experience. Those who are have a immediate and direct kind of ancestral tie um, since the point of modern European contact um, and who still remain in that. Now, there's other indigenous experiences here as well, and I think that that's where those different indigenous consciousnesses have a possibility and opportunity to relate to each other in a better way by taking seriously the, the elder perspective here uh, and bringing, you know, what you have in relation to that in a meaningful way. You know, a lot of, at least for me, my understanding or the way I understand or define indigeneity in terms of that which was smuggled in into the modern world that holds on to a memory of what it means to be a human being in a particular place uh, and on this planet you know and that's drawing from my own kind of work and 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 a doctoral thesis from a while back now um, that I keep building on that that to me is how I'm thinking about indigeneity in this kind of larger metaphysical sense which again only emerges through modernity it's not something that was always there always necessary to be there you know like we still see what many indigenous peoples call themselves is just the people or the people of this place or the people of this ancestor which is a very different way of understanding things outside of kind of an indigenous label but at the moment that's the the tension that we can work with to look at the portals beyond our current realm and reality. Understanding that if you have a relationship to place that is of respect and that it is a source of life, that doesn't mean you don't use it. That doesn't mean you don't have an impact. You know, for me, I, I have this experience of even with planting food, right, and growing food. You know, we give, we give offerings prior to. 
right? Because we're cultivating the earth. We're, we're doing something different. I come from an agricultural people. Um, and yeah, we hunted as well. And that was something else that we had to be mindful of, is that when you take a life, you're, 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 you have an impact. You're, you, you're creating an impact. And it's about having a culture of uh, mindfulness, right? And, and developing cultural traditions throughout millennia that nurtures a thoughtfulness of what it means to live in that place. And again, it's not to romanticize as if there's no impact. Of course there's an impact. But it's about, do you understand that impact? And that that impact is important to be mindful of because this isn't a resource to be extracted and exploited. Rather, it is a source of life that sustains a community or a people or a society. And there's stories from all over the world, from a variety of different cultures, where the sustainable practices emerge out of those lessons. However, a lot of that is erased through modern imperial projects. Uh, and so remembering the past and understanding how the past is present and understanding and responding to the current situation, the current reality, but also digging into something deeper that is also still here and that perhaps are just in echoes that we need to trace or track down, it offers a, another possibility of, of what we need to do moving forward. I'll wrap it up here, but I hope that for those in Utah or those who have come across Utah, that some of what I've shared is, is useful and just at least just as a starting point. There's so much more to go into and so much more to understand. Um, but if you are not of the peoples of this place in, in a deep, ancestral sense and you're not of the elder peoples of this place being you know no no nuchu numa uh no no vi dene um then you know we we have an opportunity to respect that history that legacy that knowledge and uphold it and also respect the capacity of folks from those uh, communities and look and put in some work and listen and read to what has already been shared in terms of how we might move forward. Um, on the final note I'll leave is um, two things. One is I rem uh, remember hearing Forrest Kutch say on several occasions and most recently he was on a panel up at the U where he talks about this region as a buffer zone between different bands. And so you think about place as a shared thing and thinking about Songane as referring to many houses. Um, it certainly supported many houses in the past and it is at the moment, but these many houses I would encourage that live here now have an opportunity to to think about how we share this place because we we live here um it, you know we share the air we share the water even though we're in this hyper individualistic context we depend on these shared things uh, and then the other point is from darren perry who recently was made a comment somewhere along the lines of you know all the science in the world isn't going to fix greed um, something along those lines and referring to the 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 tragic and dire situation of Biapa of, of the Great Salt Lake um, and you know one good winter that we've currently had isn't going to resolve that issue and it is an issue of greed right and the science is saying it but if the science isn't part of the 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 culture of how we live in this place then that's not going to do it either. And, and frankly, like science is, requires so much specialized knowledge to understand what's being said too. I'm not sure that that is going to be the answer. Not that it's not important, but I would argue, you know, drawing inspiration from that, that what we have is is bigger than being a climate crisis. It's a, it's a crisis of culture or it's a cultural crisis of how we have inherited living in this place and the inheritance of uh, that right now is is a harmful relationship not only to the 
non-human animals and uh, place and waters, but also to each other. And so this cultural crisis is what I hope this helps inspire confronting and facing. And whether you live in Utah or not, I hope that those are there's principles there that you can apply or share to different areas. And again, I began with kind of reflecting on living in Temona Nuyakiwa in the great Pacific Ocean and Oceania, Wansolwara, Tasi, that I bring with me here. And so, you know, with that, um, thank you for, for listening and hope that you're well wherever you are at this point in time, wherever you uh, find yourself. <laughs>